Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Garrett Boyum, joined here with Brock Hammett. We're two baseball nerds that love to have off-the-cuff discussions about motor learning, data analysis, and player development. So, Brock, do you want to kind of tell us tonight what we want to kind of investigate uh, further? Yeah, I think beforehand, talking about what we were hoping to discuss on the podcast, the one thing that that came up was um, the topic of adjustability for hitters. Uh, this week, there was a, a video of Pete Alonzo hitting a home run uh, on a swing that, um, you know, some keyboard warriors on Twitter might deem is not optimal or not in the right pattern or it's not a certain level of high or, or whatever the case may be. But um, I'm really just interested on getting your perspective on adjustability and um, you know, how we can train hitters for that using your approach. So I think for myself, like where I've actually spent a little bit more time looking at this concept of adjustability has actually been looking at Acuna, um, in his, uh, 40th home run and then, um, his 21st double and they're on different pitches. And I think that is a good way to begin the discussion about adjustability because, like he had to his he had to take kind of two different swings um, on those different pitches, not like completely different swings, but I think that that is the concept of of adjustability to me is like the ability to handle different pitches at different speeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that kind of goes against the grain a little bit on having like one swing and um you know, it's just to get your optimized. A swing. Yeah, your optimized swing that you get your A swing off, and it's this swing that you repeat all the time. Um, but adjustability, on the other hand, um, more speaks to the fact that um, components of your swing are variable um, because pitchers don't throw the same pitch in the same spot all the time. It's not like BP, right? You know, so which is a completely different uh, <laughs> tangent. But, I mean, that's, that's, I think, kind of what a good kind of starting point. No, that's great because I went on a tangent on Twitter not too long ago about how I think that we spend too much time only analyzing, like, home run swings because, mm-hmm. you know, so much of, like, the hitting Twitter community, uh, parentheses, yeah. <laughs> was, you know, it's just, it's highlights. It's highlights after highlights, basically where well, things... Well, then you also have to ask on the home run oftentimes like were they on time right like because if they're on time their swing is going to look predominantly very similar right uh versus when they get fooled a little bit and so i mean too also and i think we talked a little bit about this potentially on the previous podcast was there's more to hitting than just home runs there's more to offensive production than uh, a home run yeah i'd be willing to say that you know, there's a, you know, more majority of, you know, offensive production comes from non-home runs. Well, I mean, because you have to ask the value, and I think this is to where it'd be good to get, you know, your background knowledge on, is like, what's the value of somebody like, uh, I believe this is what Chris Dunn used to play and just strike out a ton and hit like 40 bombs or whatever. Like, what's, what's the value of a guy who can't run very well? can only hit bombs and strike strikes out a lot. 
like and is a clog on the bases. Like I wonder what's the equivalent today. Like I don't know is Chris Davis. Like I mean, did he have a better year this year? Like is he like because I think that's where like the questions that are being asked now are like, okay, what's the value of that person versus somebody like Acuna who can kind of and Trout who can kind of hit because Trout didn't hit 300 this year. He had a little bit his average was a little down, but you know his probably I don't know what his RBIs were, but like home runs are up, um, extra base hits and all that sort of stuff are are higher. Yeah, so I mean that's that's interesting altogether because the way that the game is going is is more geared towards three true outcomes players which is basically home run walk or strikeout and so just because of how good pitchers are basically the your best chance at, at doing something beneficial is maximizing the the batted ball whenever you get a chance to make contact which is obviously a home run which is the best outcome you can have mm-hmm. but that being said there's still plenty of of hits that have to come between that um i think you were looking for for adam dunn i think that no, is the player probably, you were looking for yeah, probably and but in order to do that you know you have to basically slug a crazy amount in order to be you know an above average offensive contributor so but besides that, you know, one thing that, that I've been thinking about is, you know, at a certain level, like players can kind of get a hold of, of balls at, at similar rates at the professional level. But really what, what separates the elite is basically what warrants them to get enough plate appearances to hit these home runs. And, and that comes with, you know, being able to find a way to put a barrel on a baseball on an O2 count or you know, basically when, when you're fooled or down in the count, you know, being able to get a positive outcome and eliminate the bad one, that's really what separates, you know, the elite from just the average. Well, like Rob Gray recently had a podcast on, on like how consistent your mechanics need to be for you to have um, consistent outcome or consistent positive outcome. And um, he was looking at pitching, but I think the the principles and stuff that he talked about there apply to any movement pattern and specifically hitting um, and how like actually having some level of variability actually increases your consistency of outcome. Um, I mean, one of the kind of landmark uh, referenced um, experiments um, in the motor learning world is Nikolai Bernstein's um, blacksmith experiment, where he's looking at, well, how is it that these guys who hit the same spot every single time with their hammer when they're um, working on metal and uh, metal smithing, like, what is the path? They must, they must be like a robot. Man, they're a machine. They must take the same path every single time with their hammer in order for them to hit that same spot. And so he took out a camera and um, actually traced like their movements and found out actually the hammer swing, the path it takes is not the same path every single time, yet it ends up in the same spot. And then it also happened to pass through the same spot too, but it kind of went to show that like humans are not robots. Right. Um, 
even when hitting an object that's not moving. Uh, there's there's actual there's actually variability there, and that leads to a consistent outcome. And I think that's completely uh, counterintuitive to our traditional reductionist way of thinking. Right. So I guess what I'm interested in here is, uh, you know, that topic of variability, right? And so what does what does a healthy amount of variability look like within the parameters, you know, that we were talking about um, and how to train hitters to have, you know, a good amount of variability so that they can uh, get a positive outcome with varying constraints, whether it's the pitcher, you know, spinning it, giving it different speeds or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I also feel like, well, if we're going to talk about constraints, we may have to delve into that uh, once again a little bit more. Because I think that's super important for um, people who are interested in motor learning and, like, skill acquisition and, like, how, I mean, I almost want to say, like, kinesiology to a certain extent, biomechanics. Um, you, you want to understand Carl Newell's uh, constraint-led approach which essentially talks about how the task, the environment, and the organism, um, how those three different sectors interact with one another and how the performer uh, perceives um, all these different things influences their action. Um, and so essentially by manipulating any one of those three components, um, it essentially like influences their movement pattern. Okay, so help me out here. What would be uh, an example of uh, influencing the environment in order to uh, force the hitter to to adjust or adapt? So, I think when it comes to that, like like we've talked about before, like changing pitch speeds. Um, potentially changing the count, um, changing the environment in terms of like who's present, um, in terms of maybe like submariner versus like overhand, maybe a guy who's more like Lincecum, who's like seems to come more over the top. Uh, so those are kind of some different ways that you can kind of manipulate the environment a little bit. So I wanted to pause the podcast here for a second and make a correction because I ended up confusing and infusing task constraints with environmental constraints. And I think that's common for a lot of people, especially with how we talk about training environments and this question generally. So I wanted to take a moment to bring a little bit of clarity to this and explain that environmental constraints have to do with the environment generally. So this will include things like weather conditions, which includes temperature, wind, uh, rain, snow, cloudy, sunny, those types of things. And along those lines, we'll have uh, light conditions, uh, which would include uh, stadium lights. Uh, other things would include surface conditions and how they change and ambient sound within the environment. One other thing that 
uh, will be mentioned here shortly in the podcast, is sociocultural uh, constraints, which are also considered to be environmental constraints. And they include things like uh, family support, peer groups, societal expectations, values, and cultural norms. Whereas task constraints are going to be the activities that occur within the environment, as well as the goals related to those activities. So the examples that I gave before of changing pitch speeds, pitchers, pitchers arm slots, those are all going to be considered task constraints. So I want to give some examples of what it would look like to manipulate the environmental constraints. So for example, you could um, have pitchers pitch on um, different mound types, um, whether that be a perfectly manicured mound or one that has been used and worn. Same thing with uh, pitching on like a turf mound. Um, the same could be said for hitters hitting in a really nice, you know, manicured box or one that has been chewed up, additionally uh, hitting on a turf surface. Um, so changing up the surface that you're practicing on or even to practicing in different weather conditions, whether that be colder than normal um, or uh, the surface being slightly wet, those types of things. So those would be examples of manipulating uh, environmental constraints. So I just want to kind of cover that um, before and bring a little bit of clarity to that before we continue talking about constraints further. Okay. And then what about on the constraints side? What kind of different constraints could you throw at so a hitter? The constraints are always present. Even so, what we were talking about previously were environmental constraints. So you have constraints basically fall into these three different categories, environment, task, and uh, okay. organism constraints. So like each one of these categories essentially is places constraints on the human movement system um, and influences how, how somebody's going to uh, basically move. So when we're talking about, you were talking about which, which oh, you're just talking about constraints in general. So like we want to begin to think about when we want to use the constraint-led approach, mm -hmm. which component are we trying to manipulate or, or are we manipulating? So for example, it, if we switch up what the task is, basically like what we're asking them, them to do, uh, via, let's say, for example, um, giving them a different bat. So that's going to change the task. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an example of like a task constraint. A organism constraint is going to be something like how much range of motion somebody has uh, through a joint. So, for example, like hip internal rotation, like how much you have on your front and your back leg like that will influence the moves that you're able to make. Or uh, actually a better one for like holding the ground and stuff, how much ankle uh, eversion or inversion that you have is going to influence your the way that you are going to be able to interact with the ground when you swing. So what would, what would uh, you know, change in, in an organism is constraint? Is that how I would say that? Sure, yeah. What or would, individual, like if... 
what could you um, focus on with a hitter in order to try to make him more adaptable from a from an organism constraint standpoint? So I would because I think a lot of coaches they tend to default towards. Um, like the degrees of freedom mm -hmm. and trying to manipulate that in terms of like we were talking about before internal and external rotation. Um, I actually think, so another constraint would be what's going on cognitively. So trying to manipulate uh, their intention, essentially, that will change and shift their movement behavior to a certain extent. Um, and so that would be more of my approach to, um, trying to influence the individual. Also, like really what we're trying to do when it comes to hitting is to get the hitter to basically, I think we talked about this again in our previous podcast, but it bears repeating because it's super important. The hitter's ability to attune or become highly sensitive to the information in the environment or the specifying information in the environment, i.e. the pitcher and the pitch and the ball, incoming ball, their ability to become, for lack of a better word, locked into that information is going to like most effectively influence or have the best influence on their movement behavior. So essentially, we want to, from an individual level, try to influence them to be able to connect to that information the best. And so another simple thing is like breathing and like your mental process to allow you to be focused on receiving and reacting to that information. Gotcha. So... What would be an example of you trying to get a hitter to change either his breathing or um, his thinking? I think, so this is a thing that I think is oftentimes way under-focused on. Is like, what is your pre-pitch routine? Right. So what's your in-the-box routine for how, like, I mean teaching kids how to compete. Like, I mean, so many coaches at ACBA, you know, of successful programs talk about how, you know, they try to teach, figure out ways to get their athletes in a competitive mindset. And I guess the question is, is if you're focusing on mechanics all the time and trying to optimize your mechanics, how much are you then focused on competing? And so and then focused on the information that is out there um, present in the competition. Well, in the, in the environment, meaning the pitcher and the ball. Like, so, I mean, that's why I've heard of like in pro baseball, um, there was a, a hitter who was super on a super hot streak. He was probably a rookie and he was also a, uh, he was kind of, uh, showing off or like, I can't remember, like just had like a really um, cocky attitude or whatever. And it was kind of rubbing some of the older guys the wrong way. And uh, Cal Ripken walks up to the guy and goes, hey, you're doing a good job, kid. 
just keep your back elbow up and you'll keep hitting out. Keep hit, keep hitting awesome. And then went on, went into huge a huge slump. <laughs> so I mean, it, it comes back to like, okay, like if that's how you can get somebody to go into a slump, then why as coaches are we constantly feeding feeding them these internally focused cues or mechanics? Um, and and so that's why I think it's the the intention aspect and process aspect of hitting is way under taught and way under focused on. So, I mean, I, th I think that's where we want to, like ways that we can improve what we're doing with hitters, or at least how I would focus on trying to manipulate an individual's constraints. Gotcha. So basically focusing on the process um, the routine, kind of going back to the, to the main point of, um, you know, how to get them to compete better. I mean, it's not like I wouldn't at times, you know, like let's say point something out in terms of like trying to get them to get into their legs more or something like that. But we would do that via exploration more so, I guess, in trying to um, have them explore different movement solutions in the sense of maybe like having them try to mimic another player yeah, yeah. in another player's style so do you think do you that think kind of exploration, exploration is, is vital, vital as far as, as uh, creating hitters that have high levels of adaptability yeah absolutely i mean especially if you're like i mean let's just say like you're trying to like imitate ichiro or something like that i mean the goat yeah, <laughs> and and I mean, like how his um, how his different moves are on different pitches. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think that's too. Like, I I remember thinking back to like my. Here's another way that you can influence like the individuals uh, individual constraints. Um, it's like visualizing. Like I remember like when I would visualize like swinging like another player, whether it's like Joe Maurer, Robinson Cano, whatever, like having those images in my head when I hit, like I felt like at times I felt those moves that they were doing. Um, and then also, you know, watching my other teammates, you know, hit all the time, I would at times feel like I had actually start mimicking them, like making moves similar to them. And maybe that's why like hitting is contagious, like when guys are hitting. You know, um, but I don't know. That's that's just one theory out there. No, that's no, good. good. Is there anything that you'd like to add as far as, as, far as like, like the topic, topic of, of adjustability and motor learning and ecological environments? What's kind of what makes you think? I mean, like the biggest thing is trying to get guys to con connect to the information in the environment. I mean, that's kind of what. I've been thinking a lot about, I know Sean Mishka had kind of like, you know, was the person that I think pioneered this idea of asking his athletes, like, what information are you connecting with? And I think that will begin to shift your player's relationship with hitting because so much of player coach interactions right now is like, 
what's wrong with my mechanic? Like that's yeah. almost inevitably what the first question that fix me. Right, but but let's just be honest. Like kids have been taught that that that's what they're supposed to do. If there's something wrong with them, it's mechanical, mm-hmm. and therefore the answer is mechanical. And I go to a coach for mechanical fixes, and it's coaches indoctrinating kids yeah to to think and behave that way that's just they're rewarded for that yeah and like you said that's just the culture of the game you know it's like growing up you go to a hitting coach and all you would work on was different mechanics and that's like that word became so ingrained in the culture of baseball and you know that's all that people focused on was really just like if something wasn't going right then it had to have been some sort of flaw in your mechanics. Mm-hmm. But, but nobody asked what produced that mechanical flaw. And an ecological approach says that the reason that you had a mechanical flaw was because you weren't connecting to the information in the environment. Because a misconnection to the information in the environment, like if you drop something on the floor or like bumble it or whatever, like you have your mechanics were bad for how you were trying to interact with that object right or it could just be like you weren't interacting with that information like it caught you off guard whatever like and so i think that's more now my understanding of like okay in order to understand movement like bernstein kind of talks talks about this you need to understand the context in which it emerged from and too oftentimes we think that movement emerges from nothing. Like it emerges out of a vacuum. And that's just simply not true. I mean, we already have enough people that just like don't believe that. Like, Well, I mean, it's, it's obvious, honestly. I mean, hit, especially for hitting because mm-hmm. it's, it is reactionary by nature. It's, it's obvious when you actually free yourself to look at it that way but it's not obvious in terms of how everybody thinks about about it right now like i mean that's i mean because really like who is actually thinking about it in terms of that like and i know coaches do think about this like in talking with um like a, a coach recently like he was talking about like, okay, you need to look at like, okay, what angle did this, did the pitch come in at that will influence like the type of move that they have. Absolutely. Right. But then we need to work on the mechanics of that. It's like, Oh, okay. So like, that's where it normally ends up versus like, or maybe we need to help that athlete become better at picking up that information and then exploring and trying to f- have that athlete figure out what moves will work best for them in those situations. Because, I mean, I think to me it's more about, it comes back to the question of like, how do we create better problem solvers? Mm-hmm. Like athletes that are better at solving multiple different types of problems. Because the game is, which is awesome to see, like for a while they were talking about banning shifts and I was like, no, this is especially once I got into the ecological approach. I was like, I hope that conversation dies because it will kill the creativity of the game. Because we're already starting to see coaches at at the big league level starting to understand 
these concepts of motor learning and like creating adaptable problem solving um, athletes because now we're starting to see hitters adjust and hitting the ball through the shift, either literally through the shift yeah. or away from the shift. And so essentially, as you create a more dexterous player, a player who can handle multiple different scenarios, that is one of those scenarios of like, okay, the whole infield is shifted over. You have this big gap over here. Now athletes are like training or should be trained to be able to exploit those things that the defense is giving them. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny you say that because um, going back to kind of the Cal Ripken thing about how, hey, just keep your elbow up and you'll hit like that. And then he, he sucked, which, by the way, Cal Ripken seems like a huge dick for sabotaging his own teammate. But No, no, not his own teammate. This oh, was a kid, okay. guy on a different team. Okay, okay. But, <laughs> but anyways, um, you know, you talk about how like a change in the environment can like affect you in some way. And there was a lot of talk about how the shift had basically just domed up Jose Ramirez early in the year and that Mm -hmm. he was trying to like hit away from the shift so much that it had changed what had made him such Mm -hmm. a good hitter Mm -hmm. and he had struggled so much in the first half. And the same thing happened to, to Bryce Harper and there was some analytical work done by um mike petriello i'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his last name but basically you know they were all kind of able to pinpoint basically when they stopped trying to hit away from the shift and just kind of hit through it and just whatever Mm -hmm. happens happen Mm -hmm. and you know their production levels went back to where we are accustomed to seeing those two players no i mean and i think that's also like the, the point of having the data analytics right is to understand like hey, like, you know what? You're better when you just do your thing. Right. Versus like, but at the same point, like take for example, um, so my mentor was working with a football player who every time he got the ball would always, if he was near the line, turn towards the line. So he started subtly shifting the environment so that it was harder for him to do that. But maybe that's his best way of, doing things, but by subtly shifting the environment, he began to not always go that direction. So what you can do is like, hey, just be you. Like your strength and your game plan is to pull or hit into the shift. But if you can subtly shift the environment to allow them to explore and to figure out how to go the other way with not without necessarily shifting their approach, because he wasn't Uh, my mentor wasn't trying to or wasn't telling him to go to the inside. He was trying to change the information in the environment to influence him to cut back towards the field. Right. Because how he was interacting with that information before was always automatically to do this. Yeah. So essentially it's like how do we figure out how to subtly manipulate the environment for them to be able to see – opportunities for action to hit the ball away from the shift at times. Right. I mean, but it's, but we're not trying to do it at the expense of what they're good at. Right. No, I think that's a really good example for kind of like how a change in the environment can, you know, introduce the player to 
uh, different avenues that could be successful, you know, kind of gets back to the whole MO of this podcast today, which is, mm-hmm. you know, adjustability. Like we just, you know, we influence the environment enough not to really tell him what to do, but so that he can explore more easily, you know, a, a different path of, you know, achieving the task. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's great. Um, staying with the, the topic of adjustability and kind of analytics, um, one of the things that I had tried to put together was different ways that we could measure adjustability for hitters. Um, one of the conversations that, that I've had with a coach was that they were looking at the standard deviation of vertical bat angle um, in hopes to trying to identify how adjustable a hitter is. So uh, vertical bat angle is basically you know, the angle of which the bat, um, at contact. So what you would like to see is that with a, a wider range of variability, which means that the hitter can, you know, adjust their swing or adjust how their barrel is contacting the ball. Right. Based on the pitch, because vertical bat angle is very dependent on like pitch height specifically Mm -hmm. and pitch location. So if, you know, a hitter has pretty much the same vertical bat angle or a very low standard deviation of vertical bat angle, that kind of... Or very low variability, essentially. Right, exactly. So you know that he, you know, isn't adjusting to different pitch heights. So would you then say if if they don't have a lot of variability, they may have a hole in their swing? Yeah, and I think that's kind of what, you know one of the roots of that is is because you know kind of like we were talking about at the very beginning like getting ingrained into a certain pattern without the ability to adjust um yeah you could say and you could probably figure out based on what their you know vertical bat angle is whether on the flatter side or, or steeper side whether or not um, they've got a hole in their swing whether up or down depending on how how much their their vertical bat angle uh, how large their standard deviation is. So what would, what would this mean for like, how would you do this practically? Like what would this look like? How would you gather this data? How would you, um, yeah, like how would you, how would you essentially get this data? Yeah, so uh, blast motion measures vertical bat angle. So really it's, a, it's as simple as just making sure that the blast is on, you know, the hitter's bat and then just, collecting the swings that way are there other things that you would other data points that you would want to collect in addition to just vertical bat angle yeah to to just even if we're trying to look at adjustability yeah definitely and so one of the things that i was also looking at on the topic of adjustability and like what we can measure um, is measuring the standard deviation of spine angle so that's kind of the same concept um, just seeing how how much variation a player's spine angle varies, and so how would you collect that? Okay, so the concept was introduced to me by um, Anthony Chattel. I think that's how you pronounce his name, guys. I'm, if I'm mispronouncing last names, I apologize. But his Twitter send handle. A, send us a video um, <laughs> or a soundbite on how to pronounce your name, and we'll uh, make sure to 
issue a correction. <laughs> I know I know his Twitter handle is at Sox Moneyball. Um, and he does like a, a bunch of really awesome work um, visualizing follow, data. Follow him. Yeah, definitely. But um, the, the calculation for spine angle was 90. It's like 90 degrees. Uh, minus connection at impact plus vertical bat angle. So and this is all off of blast. Yeah, metrics. you can get all this from blast. Um, so for example, an 80 degree connection at impact um, plus a negative 25 vertical bat angle would give you a, a spine angle of 35 degrees. Um, so seeing how much um, spine angle basically varies the same, the same way as vertical bat angle kind of gives you more insight as far as how much the hitter is able to adjust with his tilt. Um, so that's, that's another way that I think that we might be able to measure adjustability. To go back uh, to your initial uh, video um, that we're talking about with the, the Mets player that I can, I know, I know it starts with an A, but I'm Alonzo. Like Alonzo. Yeah. I was just so worried I was going to get that name wrong. But anyways, <laughs> so going back to Alonzo's hit, I mean, that's that's essentially like what we saw there was like a variation. Like where like we can use Blast potentially to figure out like what good variation we want and then potentially like where we want or where we where we want to see more consistent um, like variables essentially. Yeah, go elaborate on that just a little bit so I can understand kind of what so, you're doing. So, like, okay, there are going to be certain, like, what could be known as attractor states where, like, you have, like, high levels of stability within your movement mm -hmm. that don't vary that much. So, right. for example, in um, Rob Gray's latest podcast where he's talking about uh, Katsuma's 2007 hitting study where they're looking at um, – Hit, where they had hitters on force plates and they were looking at um, the timing and weighting of their swings. So like when their foot got down and then when they weighted onto their front leg. Um, there's a little bit more to that study, but like in a nutshell, like they're kind of looking at that. And what they found, at least within that study, although I don't know if this is necessarily true across the board, but what they found there was that hitters were consistently putting their foot down always at the same time after they picked it up. So then that led to the question of like, okay, how are they adjusting to uh, off-speed pitches, which was also part of their study of throwing fastballs and off-speed pitches and then having a mixed scenario. So in that mixed scenario, it seemed as though they were always putting their foot down at the same time, but they were still hitting the ball. So clearly they had to have an ability, to, like what was adjusting to enable them to hit the ball. So the an attractor state there would be them putting their foot down at the same time. Yeah, no, that's honestly a perfect segue to a couple other ways that I was thinking that we could measure adjustability. The first kind of like you were saying is getting, you know, the standard deviation of how long um, the f lead foot um, is on the ground. Um, I know it seemed as from the study that... Or like not how long it's on the ground, but like also because I also think that for some hitters, they might actually vary when they put their foot down too. So that's a question. And then their weight shift is always 
Like that's the consistent point. So like to me, attractor states are going to vary from player to player, but there are always these stable components through which they they do everything. And so, I mean, because it kind of comes back to like for for most people, like we we need routine. Like mm-hmm. we need some level of stability in our life, but we also need the ability to have flexibility within that stability. So hitters mechanics are going to be similar. And so essentially we want to try to identify what is the stable component of their, of their, of their swing and movement behavior. And then what are the elements through which that they, um, create adjustability. Right. I mean, I would say that for the most part, like those pillars are at least pretty well known. Um, I mean, I don't, I feel like they're not as well known like that, meaning like they're highly contested, like, you need to put your foot down at the same time. Right. Or I wouldn't say that most people are, are calling that or like to be a pillar. shift or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, or I don't know. I feel like people, at least, that is an argument that is continually going on Twitter as to like what are the correct mechanics. Oh, yeah. No. I, and and those, what, those I feel like are the people's like what they would call checkpoints. Like is what is is what people are actually trying to – um, turn attractor states into. And I don't think attractor states are just checkpoints. Like they're like from a definition standpoint, they're stable movement patterns. And everybody, in my opinion, is going to have slightly different ones. But you are going to see a pattern because there are only so many that work that are successful um, at hitting. And so like they're going to clump together like i think on our last podcast we probably talked about like patterns right right and it's clusters of data sets or data points so similarly you're going to see this cluster of data points but as long as you fall within a certain area like you're going to be successful right like no no swing is going to be exactly the same so to speak but if you were to trace over a, a player's movements you're going to get you're going to see a pretty common pattern with the way he moves but there's going to be you know Slight variations to each movement depending on what he needs to do to accomplish the task of, you know, hitting the ball hard in the air. Yeah, or just not to a defender, right, Right. so that they can get on base safely. I mean, but this goes back to, like like you were saying, like one point that I thought you – good point that you made was, like, if you were to overlay a hitter's swing, um, if we could – you know, be so fortunate to get the same camera angle mm-hmm. on a bunch of different swings. You would probably see similar to uh, Bernstein's experiment with the blacksmiths of like, oh, hey, everything seems to like it has some deviation in movement and everything seems to come through this one point and like where a lot of things line up and then we have some other variations. Right. And I think it would be that would be a cool experiment that somebody somebody should do. Right. And it's going to be it's going to be more extreme. Like the deviations are going to be more extreme than, you know, the blacksmith because the blacksmith's hitting an object that's not moving. That's, so, that's a good point. So we're going to see larger deviations and just because of the way that hitting is so reactionary, that's kind of why you know, trying to measure these certain elements in the swing i think in order to see that variability is good because of how much variability there is just in the pitch alone so Mm -hmm. that's kind of why we're trying to measure 
uh, these certain things. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. I, I guess more why I was saying that too was I don't think nobody's really start, looked for these things. Like there's so much now in baseball if you start, the more you delve into an ecological approach, the more unexplored territory there is when it comes to player development of things that like most people just haven't even looked at yet. Yeah. And so like meaning like we just don't know yet, you know, we haven't, we, we should test the theory, theories and see what comes out of them because nobody's actually like examined baseball in this way. Yeah. I think it helps that more and more like the technology to actually look into these certain things mm-hmm. are more Find publicly available. Right. So that's obviously the biggest thing. So Blast is huge just from the fact that there's so much of this like stuff that we can measure for variability um, because we think that it's important. We always, I mean, adjustability is one of the biggest buzzwords in hitting, right? We, we got to make adjustable hitters. Well, um, yeah. At least from my, you know, the people that I see, like everyone's like, you know, it's like the hot thing, you know, to be like, to create adjustable hitters. Like, okay, well, how do you know if your hitter is adjustable or not? Yeah. yeah. So that starts with measuring something. And I think having these, these different, um, blast motion, uh, elements and measuring the variability between those. And there's, there's some other things that you could do. Um, for instance, just like seeing like the median exit velocity of different points of impact. So basically like you know, a deeper contact point to medium to, uh, you know, out in front, like how well can the hitter handle all of that is another example of adjustability. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like we have the technology to measure that now with hit tracks and hopefully soon, um, with Hawkeye at the minor league and major league level, just to Ooh, tell me a little bit more about Hawkeye. Honestly, that sounds cool. <laughs> honestly, I don't know a whole lot about it other than, um, we're going to actually get some measurements of the bat, um, and that it's basically going to replace trackman. Wait, you can get measurements of the bat? Yeah, that's, that's supposed to be the next big thing. How do you do that? That's super interesting. Yeah. So hopefully soon we'll be getting like, you know, attack angle information, bat speed information, um, you know, plain information, similar stuff that we get from Blast and Hit Tracks kind of rolled into one. So I'm really excited for that. Huh. And so it's a sensorless system yeah, essentially. No. That's that's super interesting. I bet you it's not cheap. Because this is kind of where where I was going. It's like, okay, how can we do like what about the coach who doesn't have like a forty thousand or a hundred thousand dollar budget, you know, for technology? Like what what other ways using traditional metrics or creating, you know, less technology heavy metrics, like could we potentially use to also measure adjustability? Yeah. I mean, to me, like not to hammer home like blasts, but I mean, I feel like it's pretty much affordable for, for everybody. It's only like you know, a hundred bucks or so for one bat sensor and you can use that on multiple players. So just collecting swings from that and then, you know, looking at the variability between the certain, you know, elements that I mentioned earlier, whether that's vertical bat angle or spine angle or even like time to contact, I think could be potentially a good way to 
look at how adjustable a hitter is basically how long um he's able to buy time before um i guess launching his swing completely so that could be another way to to measure adjustability is um the standard deviation of of time to contact on balls that the hitter hit within 90% of their peak exit velocity and for the most part like like i said with blast like that's something that's affordable for pretty much everybody well so one thing that i was looking up and i saw cuz you talked about um contact points mm-hmm. and so i saw somebody i think today on twitter he was using like his his iPhone and taking video of guys in in game swings and just looking at like where they contacted the ball yeah um on their swings and i think you know of of things that you talked about like most people have a phone with a camera on it and apps generally are pretty free and cheap uh when it comes to um uh video analysis software and like because one thing too that's been cool at Missouri State is like we utilize a very simple um, system that like kind of using the eye test on like marking down different metrics in terms of like hard hit, uh, weak contact, um, two strike counts, like um, kind of different situational mm-hmm. based like um, metrics essentially like did you do well did you not do well and then like kind of using that like could we create a system similarly that we could use um like that we could even use based upon like looking back at like old data too of like trying to find out you know how adjustable was a guy could we is there a way looking back at a way to compare a guy from 2019 to a guy in you know 2005 or 2008 like is there a way to actually like compare and analyze adjustability and i'm not necessarily saying that we we have the answer right now but i i think that is a interesting question um because the the coolest thing about the release of all this data in terms of um like just stats you know, like sabermetrics and all that sort of stuff is like, all you really need is a brain and the know-how with math. Mm -hmm. That's the coolest thing about like the data revolution is like, it's not, it's high tech, but it's not super high cost other than the time to figure it out. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, something that is said a lot that I really like is the difference between science and not science is just writing stuff down. (laughs) And so it's like, well, like you can tell like which, uh, batted balls are good with our eyes. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can even make simple measurements like that and then start trying to analyze it from that way. You know, like Mm -hmm. is, you know, if you want to time, like how long is his foot on the ground, you know, and just see the difference between that. I mean, that's something that you can do just by counting like frames off of, you know, video analysis. But I mean, you could even do it as simple as like going with the eye test. Oh, that was a good adjustable swing. Like, okay, sure. We have to break away from the, 
he was out in front like mentality and like, wow, that was an athletic swing. Right. Like he was out in front on that pitch. He lunged and hit a line drive over the shortstop's head. That's a freaking athletic play. Like, 100%. And the more that you can do that and get caught out front and hit line drives over the middle infielder's heads or, I don't know, if even better, you hit a double in the gap, right? Like, you know, that's that's like that's talent yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely dependent on the context too because um, – you know, the, the type of swing that you're describing, like if we're, if the trade-off for that is, you know, for hitting something over the shortstop's head is, you know, a home run, you know, we're, we're getting that and we're not going to be able to hit a home run. So it's like, okay, it was, it was an adjustable swing because he was fooled and he was still able to hit it. But given the context of maybe it was a 2-0 count and he got a, you know, or a 3-1 count, like the trade-off might not have been worth it. So I think it's a, it's a balance between like, you know, strategy and just like adjustability or being athletic. But the question is, and I know like the, the hard part is, is we're playing the what-if game, right? And it's like, oh, well, he got a base hit and he should have take a, taken a home run hack and missed. So that he could get the next pitch and do that. Well, it's like, well, what if he didn't swing and miss, but instead he swung and he hit it and he hit weak contact. And instead of it being a line drive over the shortstop's head, it was a ground ball to the third baseman that was an out at first. You know, and so it's like we can't we can't really the what if game is super hard. To, to a certain extent. And there's so much luck involved in baseball. It's like, you know what? Let's just play the statistical odds in the sense of, at least in my opinion, having a more dexterous player statistically is going to get more luck. More luck is going to come uh, come his way. And you could you can probably, like this is where the question, and I don't know this, and this is where it would be really interesting to see on balls that you, yeah, you were caught out front and you didn't hit it as hard, but that was still probably barreled. Like the only way that you're going to hit a line drive where you're out in front over the shortstop's head that falls in front of like the outfielder is you have to put it on the sweet spot to give it, you know, with a good, with a good, with the right launch angle. And obviously, it's probably not going to be at the velocity of a well timed up pitch. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And I'm I'm certainly not going to advocate against, you know, creating a, a dexterous player, but I will say that, you know, my only point here is um, you know, we want to still try to, you know, optimize their performance in that, you know, we want to take as much risk as we can whenever we're allowed and you know, in the count and, you know, the script of the game. Um, and, and try to minimize risk whenever the, you know, the deck is stacked against us, so to speak. And I think that that's why, you know, creating a dexterous player is so important is so that, you know, whenever the, the deck is stacked against them, so like a two or an O2 count, for example, they're able to, you know, adjust better and to minimize, you know, that O2 count with a, of the single flare. If that sort of, if that kind of makes sense. Uh, you want to 
replay that one more time? Yeah. So obviously you want to create, you know, a hitter that can adjust everything mm-hmm. and that has the ability to, you know, flare a single, you know, hit the sweet spot, like you said, over the shortstop's head. But my only point was that isn't, you know, just because the hitter can do that doesn't mean he necessarily should given the context of the count. Mm-hmm. So it's important, but, you know, we don't want to advocate. But I think this comes back to then talking about a h- intention. Like, what are the hitter's intentions? So I think that's, that's where that comes back into play is like, okay, a hitter needs to have enough um, baseball IQ to understand the situation to, so that their intention matches the game situation so like that's where to me it's i mean like what it kind of comes back to like coaches getting mad at players for hitting the ball over the fence Mm -hmm. it's like now keep the ball down hit a line drive well now it's like the inverse of that no hit the ball over the fence none of this like single crap right (laughs) you're like wait what like yeah i mean like because like, the question is, is like, well, it, the only, in my mind, the only scenario in which like that's bad is if the guys behind them can't do anything, right? He got a single and the guys that are behind him can only like strike out and they don't have the ability to do anything with him on base. I think that you kind of need to assume that though, because not that necessarily that the guys behind you aren't going to do it, but just because scoring runs especially at the higher level you go becomes more and more difficult that's oh, sure that's why you know but home runs are so important now is because guys can't slap together a bunch of singles because making contact with the ball is just that much harder than it used to be but it still happens like and that's the thing like i like i don't know how it probably doesn't happen that much with the twins but like meaning this like you have a guy like a rise who is not that much of a power guy. And he's more of kind of like in my mind, because he's left-handed, he's kind of like a slapper on like a softball team. Just like how he uses the bat. Um, Just seems more hands to the ball, a lot more like throw the hands at the ball. It seems more like how his swing operates. And then in like the last game that I watched, like Rosario hit like two doubles. I mean, sorry, he had three doubles the last game against the the Royals. And, like, you have singles with doubles, like, that puts pressure on defenses and stuff like that. I mean, that's where, to me, having adjustable hitters, like, it's not going to hurt you because, like, the guys behind in your lineup, again, your goal is to make adaptable, dexterous hitters throughout your entire lineup. And so... To me, the more balls you're able to put in play that don't get caught and that lead to bases, like that's only going to help you score runs. Yeah, like I said, never going to advocate against creating dexterous hitters, but I don't agree with the fact that putting a ball in play never 
it's not that it doesn't hurt you. It's just like it doesn't help you as much as it possibly oh, could sure. when the trade-off for that could be but a better result. I don't think that's result. what the intention is. The intention is not to go up there to only hit singles. Like, I, like that's where we're going back to. Like, but for some been, hitters, it could be. You know, and I think sure. a, a lot of hitters, you know, that kind of reinvent themselves, a lot of it comes from a change of intention. You know, mm-hmm. they're trying mm-hmm. to pull the ball in the air more or whatever the case may be. super simple. Do damage. Look for pitches that you can do damage on. But of that, when you're trying to do damage and you get fooled on a pitch, you need to sometimes, like, you're you're just going to swing. So the question is, is if you're going to hit the ball, how do you want to hit it? Weakly? Or do you want to hit it solid? And, and to me, like, if you're going to make contact, then you want to make solid contact if you end up swinging at a pitch. And... The, the, the thing that I don't worry about is a swing and a miss because that's just going to happen. Like you're going to swing and you're going to miss. But on the off chance that you actually happen to hit the ball, let's try to increase your odds of hitting it square if you're going to end up running into the thing. So, I mean, like that's kind of my framework of how I'm thinking about a dexterous hitter because like, yeah, I mean, I definitely totally understand like, yeah, we want to maximize their production. But I'm thinking about it in terms of like worst case scenario. They hit the ball. How do we maximize their production when they end up hitting the ball? It's going to be them hitting it square. Right. Essentially. Yeah. And and I'm all for that. I just hopefully we can do it in situations where it's a worst case scenario in the count. Of course. But I feel like baseball and like this podcast, or at least my feelings currently towards the podcast, this episode is like, you know what? Like, you you like just kind of have to make it work like sometimes it's not perfect like you would love to have your delivery and your answers to everything freaking spot on and as often as possible but sometimes it's you know what you're just gonna have to work through it and do the best that you can and so um i mean that's kind of like like that's the that's the struggle like the 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 struggle that we're having like Mm -hmm. in terms of our um, going back and forth, I think encapsulates the struggle that we as people and athletes have of like trying to figure out what is this balance of like perfection versus um, like good enough. Yeah. And it is a balance. And I hope that our listeners will, will stick with us on this journey <laughs> as, as we yeah, continue totally. to balance, uh, you know, getting this thing right. But I appreciate all of you that that are listening and hopefully we'll get with you soon yeah i mean i think that's you know like encapsulating like the non-linearity of like us learning and figuring this out which will be a topic of of another podcast but yeah so again if you like this stuff uh please like share subscribe um hit us up in the comments um, with any questions or different things that we should talk about in future. Yep. And you can find uh, me on Twitter at BRock21. Um, Garrett, where can we find you? So you can find me at gboyum01 at Twitter or just gboyum at the other social media uh, platforms, Instagram, Facebook, uh, et cetera. That's, that's just good branding on your part. I just got lucky that it was available. All right, guys. Um, Thanks for listening, and we'll 
hit at you. We'll talk at you next time.